Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read together the first six verses. And then begin. It's Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, This is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have found your deeds complete, or have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and kept it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will never erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we do come now desiring to be revived even looking at this church this morning. We pray that these things would not be true, that we pray they are not true and would not be true in the future, but we know the danger for every church is to start well and to not finish as strong. And so may we learn the lessons here that you intended by the inspiration of your Spirit not only for Sardis, but for all the churches that would come throughout all of church history, read this letter and learn what Christ demands of his church. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, my wife and I, we bought our first home almost 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago here in Gretna. And there's kind of a running joke, I suppose. There's multiple running jokes in our house. and You guys know how that is in marriage. And, and one of the running jokes is in that first home— we bought it. It was a ranch. It had a finished upper level and a, a walkout basement that was unfinished. And I finished that basement with help. So I's a little bit relative. Asked my brother about those things. Uh, he wasn't around actually time. So mostly I, I finished that. And I remember before Owen was born, it was a big deal. I went down. Ashley, being ready to have a baby, was not going to be doing much work with me. And I painted the whole basement and listened to sermons, and it was great. We have Owen. And then we have Quinn, right? And we're kind of busy. Church is growing. It's, it's a wonderful season of life. And all of a sudden, that kind of industrious Josh, who used to do projects, he went away. He died and was replaced with me, who was going. And the joke in our house is, when she asked me to do things, you remember when I finished the basement at Ash Street, which is our first house? You remember when I did that? Remember how hard that was? Remember how I learned how to do drywall and I stomped the ceiling? You remember that? That was amazing. And of course, she's looking at me going, that was 11 years ago. And, and she's kind, and she's not necessarily looking for what you're doing for me lately, but it's kind of a joke because we've all had those things in life. When you remember when, you remember when you were fit? Not saying you're all not fit, right? You remember when you could jump the— We've had church and schools and gyms, so every once in a while when no one's looking, I'll jump up, try to touch that net barely anymore. I don't want anyone to see that. I remember when I used to be able to jump. I remember I used to be able to, to run and do all those things. 
You live in the, the past great deeds. Same thing can happen spiritually, which is you remember when you first got saved and how passionate you were. You'd evangelize the dog, right? If he would listen. You want to get baptized? Well, let's go. And you were so excited for the things of the Lord. You were so excited to open up the scriptures and read them. I know individuals who were so excited about reading their Bible, they read it through twice, right away. And then the years go by and all of a sudden you're going, man, I don't quite have that desire. I'm not quite, it doesn't feel quite as new. You felt that in relationships and that's what we are with believers. We have a relationship with Christ and it can grow cold and stale. But Sardis here isn't quite like Ephesus because they don't seem to be doing the right things. There's really an interesting place for them here in the midst of all of these letters to different churches is there's not the classic commendation. Here's what you're doing really well. And these things I have against you. Sardis really doesn't have either one of them. In fact, you get a little trick because you're waiting for him saying in verse 1, I have something that I'm going to commend you for. You have a name that is alive, but you're dead. And it's kind of, well, what is this church? What are the lessons we're going to learn? And I, and I think they're the remember when church. So if I had to change the title on the bulletin, I'd change it to remember when. Because they seem to have started really well. There's some things that remain that they need to go and strengthen. But they're living in the past. Living back into a glorious history. And just because you have a glorious history, does not mean as a church you're going to have a glorious future. Insert Husker joke. I'll leave it alone. The Church of Sardis is the remember when church. They need a revival because they are asleep. Multiple commentators, you know, talk about this as the dead church. I think it's probably better to say dying, almost dead, because what I do love about this and why the sermon can almost start to turn a little positive is because there's hope. We're not just going to sit here and beat on the church at Sardis and say they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. No, they're, they're, they're dying. They're almost dead. There's not much good to say. In fact, Jesus has nothing good to say. He simply says, wake up, remember. And so that's going to be, of course, the call for us. And we're going to look at these four wake-up calls that are to the church at Sardis. And for us, there likewise going to be four different wake-up calls to the church at Sardis. Now, as you look at Sardis, we go around here. Uh, the churches, you're going to see it is up there, just east of Ephesus, inland. It was kind of in the middle and in a major trade city. It was, in its history, which is interesting, a very important history. But by the time you get to when this letter is written in the first century, the late first century, the, nine, the 90s, they're not that. And so it's, it's interesting that their glorious history as a city is, is very much parallel to it seemingly in the 30-year history of their church. At one point, it was so glorious that they have a reputation which is good. But if you were to visit them, they wouldn't live up to their reputation. It's interesting, as a city, probably one of the more notable things is how often uh, they were conquered. They were conquered twice the same way. People wanted this city because it was at one point a capital and it was kind of a place of a military stronghold. 
And one commentator says it this way, because it was conquered the same way twice. This is the first time. He says it was a virtually impenetrable military fortress because it was 1,500 feet above the lower valley. When Croesus was king of Lydia, so 500 BC, he felt secure. In other words, they sat up. You couldn't get the backside of them because there was just a cliff there. And unbeknownst to him, Cyrus, the Persian king, when he was attacked, he surrounded the city, and he didn't think they would ever be able to climb the mountain behind the city. And Cyrus had his soldiers one by one mountain climb the back of that hill, and they came in and they sacked the city. Historians say that even if he, that is the king, Croesus, would have left a child to guard that pathway, the city would have been spared. Another one comes a little bit later where a single mountain climber climbs up and infiltrates the city. So it's interesting because it does serve as an appropriate background for, for them as a church as well. They, they've grown, they've grown uh, wealthy and smug and undisturbed. But yet, they are arrogant, thinking that they can never be attacked as a city or never be a spiritually dead church. Those assumptions, they're not watching the gate. They're not guarding good doctrine becomes their downfall. They've simply become a monument to what was once a great church. I said I thought of a lot of different illustrations in the sports world, in the political world. Um, when I was in e eastern Ukraine and about 10 years ago, and you see all of those monuments, right, to the Soviet era. And they're just big, and they're metal, and they're interesting. But those people are long gone, and they're just monuments. Once influential great people, but they're just there. And in many of those cases, they get completely torn down. But, like I said, there is hope for this dying church. Look with me at chapter 3, and let's look at this first wake-up call. And the first wake-up call that Christ gives is to wake up by remembering their name. And in our case, we think about implication for us. Wake up, if we need to wake up, which I think we all do at different times. We've all been there. Wake up by remembering your name. And it kind of flows from this name they're known by, and then, you're, of course, you're going to talk about their name will not be blotted out of the book of life. So name keeps kind of popping up in this letter written to the church at Sardis. Verse 1, he says, And to the angel, or to the messenger of the church in Sardis, write, This is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, we know there is only one Holy Spirit. And why does he say seven spirits of God? We talked about that in chapter 1. But if you weren't here, that, that number stands for fullness. And it represents that the, the full spirit is there. And of course, it's used throughout the book of Revelation. Fullness, completeness. The Holy Spirit is the only, the, uh, only path towards life in the church. You go back to Acts chapter 2. It's the spirit, as Jesus leaves, that gives life to the church. John 16, 7 says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That advocate is the spirit. So Jesus goes to the Father, but he sends his spirit. There's no man-made program that can revive a church. There's no initiative that I can start if I walked into a church that is going to, by my power, 
wake it up from sleeping and being ineffective. Only the Spirit is the one who can move and make that happen. The Spirit gives life to the church, and the Spirit still gives life to the church. And Jesus says, I am he who has the seven spirits of God. He who is one in Trinity with the Spirit. And it's he who's going to say this to this church, both in power and authority. These are the things they need to do. As I said, a lot is written that this is the dead church. Well, you don't write to a dead church in the sense of dead, dead. You write to a church in warning so that there's hope for change. And I think that's what is here. There's, there's things they can do, but it's seemingly worse off than many of the other churches we have looked at so far. But they are to live up to their name. It says there in verse 1, I know your deeds. So it seemingly that's, like I said, you start to look at it, it seems positive that you have a name and that you are alive, but you are dead. It's this whole concept of a name, what you are known by, your reputation, and what was known in Asia Minor. It's a world without media, without telephones, without the typical things that we, we know of. And so years might go by, and you might be surprised when you walked into a place and go, wow, this place has changed a lot. You'd heard this was a city. Maybe in this case, you heard this was a church that was full of love, full of good teaching and doctrine, and they lived righteous and godly lives. And then you walk into the church and you're going, whoa, this is not at all what I thought I was going to walk into. They, they confess the ancient creeds of the church, but they live in absolute contradiction to those truths. Ephesians 4.1 says it this way, that therefore, and this is talking to church at Ephesus, but of course to us by extension, the prisoner in the Lord, that is Paul, he exhorts you to walk worthy. And he uses that picture of walking as living. You're to live in a way to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we're missing all of chapter 1 in, in Ephesians, which is all about your call, your election, that you've been predestined before the foundations of the world. Walk worthy of that. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is to say, the Spirit gives gifts. Oh. I'm confused. You're going to have to use a vocal. What do I need to do? Set the what? Ah, oh, The recording. Got to protect the recording. We need better hand-eye signals. It's like, cut the cord, turn off the mic, we're going to get it. We'll do that in the back next time. Where were we? <laughs> the Spirit gives gifts to the church. And it empowers the church. These are the things in Ephesians 4 that you would expect to find in a church that has this excellent name, this excellent reputation. But there's no spiritual life there. I've had this experience in multiple different ways. I've had this experience with churches. I, I've been, when I lived in California, to a number of large churches where they had a reputation. And so you almost go out of curiosity, right? And you go and visit the church. One in particular I can remember visiting in Orange County. And I came, and it was almost—in fact, I was kind of warned of this. And the person I was with said, 
let me know when you see the first Bible. So I was like, okay, you know, and it was a pretty big production, multiple campus within there, and you had to ride the tram like Disney to the service and all of that. And riding the tram, getting to the service, sitting in the service, I never found one. And I asked the person in the bookstore, actually the group of us were there in the bookstore, and we asked them because they didn't have any Bibles in the bookstore. And they said, well, you you don't need that here. I think they meant maybe like something other than sound in. Kind of, let me record that. Let me replay that to you. And did you really mean to say that? I don't know if you did. But they didn't use it. And it was true because the philosophy on the preaching was we want to preach things from Scripture, but without people knowing it. I don't know. That's not what I want to do. (laughs) How does that happen? How does a church go from a church that you would expect to be evangelistic, to be preaching the truth to a church where you can't even find the scriptures anywhere. The same thing happens with people. I hope it doesn't happen to you. If you come to my house for dinner and you go, oh, he's up front all the time. thought he was smarter. And you have dinner and you go, maybe that guy's not as smart as I thought. I can be honest. I've had that thought. I've met a few different uh, celebrity pastors as well, famous people that I go, I don't understand it. Why are you famous? Working on hopefully not being, well, I don't have to worry about the famous side, but hopefully there's some level of you go, oh, he's a decent guy. He's a decent dad. And then you come over and it's like, oh, yeah, he's a decent guy and a decent dad. There's some consistency in your reputation, what people know of you and what's really true. If you're one who presents yourself as one who can handle the scriptures, that seems to be spiritually mature— that as people get to know you, then that's true. You are someone who is wise, who you would go to with counsel, not just someone who kind of presents it on the outside. In a world of social media, it's pretty easy. How do you become a spiritual person? How do you get make sure everyone knows that you're spiritual? Well, you post once a day for five seconds and say something, or you mention your Bible verse, which I'm not saying is a bad idea. I'm just saying that's really easy to detach your life, who you are, with what other people think. Something like that is going on here at Sardis. There's a detachment from what their reputation is, particularly what their name is, their calling. They say, you're, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm in Christ. And they're living in a way where, to use the analogy that comes later, their clothes are stained, which has been used in throughout Scripture and in Revelation to say that they are following idols. And their life isn't matching what they say. Wake up. Remember that there has to be consistency between what you say out loud, who you claim to be, and your life. And of course, we all know those who know you closest will figure it out eventually, whether it's children or a spouse. They know what all of us don't know. But of course, more importantly, the Lord knows, the Lord sees. Why? Because he's the one walking among the churches who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, and he knows And what a sad thing when you find that there's nothing. It's just an outward shell, but nothing on the inside. There's a whole nother sermon in me that goes back to Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, right? Live a whole life that your outward actions match your inward motivations and desires. So wake up. Remember what you say you are and 
Be consistent. Live that way. Secondly, wake up by completing your deeds. Verse 2, the way Jesus calls them is he says in a way that there are things they have that are still there and they need to strengthen. He says, verse 2, wake up, strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. That is, there's something incomplete, right? There's something that is missing. I'm not 100% sure how to take that, I'll be honest. Is the incomplete the side of they're doing outward actions that are good and right, Matthew 5, but the inward motivation is wrong? I'm sure that's true. But there really is no commendation that they're doing all these outward deeds that are good and right, like Ephesus, and that they lack love. So it even seems to be more than that here. He found their deeds lacking. They've been weighed on the scales. And you are missing things. But yet, he does seem, the answer is, how do you wake up? You're asleep. He says, you wake up by strengthening the things that remain. And I find this extremely encouraging in an odd way, right? Because if there is something, there's still a little bit of hope. And sometimes when, when, when life gets off the rails, you, you lose almost like, okay, just, just a little bit I can, I can hold on to. And he's saying, hold on to that. But then from there, start growing. Become one who is watchful. I have multiple young trees in my yard right now. And there's a few of them that I just am this close to tearing out. But they're still green. They don't produce very well. But there's hope. And I'm going, I don't want to toss that away. It might turn it around. So you water it and water it and water it. That's this idea here. What you find that is good, what remains, strengthen it, grow it, water it. See what the Lord does. They began a faith or a life of faithful service, but something impeded their progress. Now they got to go back and that's okay. Sometimes you can take the course and you got to go back, right? And that's okay. But the point is go back and take it again and do well. It impeded their progress. And I think for them, it might be persecution. It's not mentioned. It would just be assumed. They're persecuted like everyone else. We didn't go into their history as far as temples. They have multiple temples there just as well. Um, it's not mentioned. Maybe because there's so much idolatry, so much compromise that there is no persecution there. That could be the case. Everyone's laying low as a Christian there, perhaps. But something along the way, a desire to be liked, a desire to compromise, something happened where they were growing and flourishing and it just came to a screeching halt. As individuals, maybe it's something in your own life where you go, I was progressing well and I saw it. You look back when you first became a Christian and how excited you were and then certain things come up. Maybe it's a family issue or a circumstance, a thing that just becomes all-consuming and distracting. I've, I've been there. Maybe it's a health issue or a financial issue where all of a sudden, all the things you were kind of desiring to do are just poof, right? I don't have any capacity for those things anymore. For some, I've seen it before, where of course you have a bad church experience. And you don't really want to jump in with, all, with both feet and get involved and, get, and be engaged. You've been too relationally hurt. And I'd say, that's a reality. But this is a good encouraging reminder of if that's stalled and impeded progress to jump back in, progress, start from wherever you are at and do as much as you can, knowing everyone is going to kind of be along the way. 
it's hard to maybe jump in and do as much as you used to do, progress. Don't let those things impede you growing spiritually. You're serving the church. This is the, I started the, the diet, right? I started the workout routine. I made the New Year's resolution and it's February and I'm, I'm off, right? It's okay. Just go back, start wherever you were. Start from here. I like that phrase. If you guys have heard that phrase before, I tend to tell myself it a lot because I got a lot of balls juggling with, with all the things going on in church and life. It's okay. I don't, everything, I don't ever do anything as perfect as I would like to, but you just got to start somewhere, right? If you're not doing as much as you would like with your children as a spiritual leader in the home, as a father, been there, right? The only answer I have is you today, right? Start from here and, and change and do things differently from today. Wake up is the call here in verse 2 by completing your deeds. Understand, and there's a sense in which you're never done. You're never going to be complete, but you're progressing. And the Lord calls them, whatever is there that is good, cast off, right? Put off certain things, put off sins, but put on certain things. What you're putting on, strengthen and start from there and begin to grow. No one is going to live their Christian life. No one's going to live life in general in a perfectly straight line. There's just a natural dip in there of progression where you're really good at something and then you get the new job and it's harder. That's okay. The lesson here in Sardis is don't live in past glory. Don't live back in college when you were on fire and had all the time to serve the church. Don't, don't live in those days and think that's enough. I had a good friend, remain nameless, uh, from high school. And I just remember he came back to—we were talking at some point a couple years after high school. And he was going back to the cafeteria to hang out with some friends. And I thought, oh, I, can't, I could never do that. I, I, to go backwards? I was kind of the—I'm done with high school, right? I'm moving on. I think some of you guys can identify with that. This is—you're living in the past, right? When you were—and it's nice, right? I went to a small school. I got to play all the sports. I didn't have to learn the hard lesson that I wasn't the fastest, the strongest, and the biggest. And then, you know, you go to college and you go, oh, I guess I'm now a freshman again, right? It's easy to live back and live on those old glory days. And this is an encouragement of starters. Don't do that spiritually. Don't live on the old name or the old things that got you that reputation. You have to keep doing those things. One of the things you got to keep doing by living towards the future is you better start remembering. Verse 3, so wake up by complete your deeds. And thirdly, wake up by remembering what you received and repent. So remember by, remember the things which Christ has done and by repenting of the ways in which your life has been inconsistent with those things. That's what he's called for. Jesus says, remember, verse 3. There is something there that they can remember. There was some. We don't have anything here, information of how Sardis was planted. If it was Paul, could be. But it's, it's not known. But someone came along. Someone preached the gospel. Someone preached the good news. They believed. They remembered what it was for the burden of guilt to roll off their back. And he says, remember what you have received. Remember what you have heard. And keep it. And repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, so the same picture there is from verse 2, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come to you. Remember, hold on. 
or it will be taken. Reminds me of Mark chapter 4, verse 21. That's a section in Mark about the parables. He says, and he was saying to them, and he kind of says two short parables, but is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he was saying to them, and this is the part that I remember from preaching, Mark, because it was kind of tough to go, what does this mean? And he, Jesus said, they said, beware what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Parables are hard enough. And it's going, well, wait a minute, that doesn't even sound fair. They're going to take away if they don't— and the, what the, Jesus is saying there is, if you don't use it, you lose it. There's a way in which disciples use what the Lord has given, and they grow that. They keep learning. They keep growing. And there's this reality of, if they don't receive these things, probably referencing more of the truth that Jesus is preaching, and probably the Pharisees who are not listening, unbelievers not listening, then it's all, the little bit of truth they're exposed to, it's all going to be taken because of their unbelief. But over and over again, you see this kind of principle play out. You take what you have and you grow it. Think of the parable of the talents or just the basic principle of sowing and reaping throughout all of Scripture. You, early on, sow good things, good godly habits. You're in the Word. You're mindful. You're memorizing Scripture and all those things, and you reap certain things. That's the reality. You stop doing those things, you're going to reap the reality of not being close to the Lord. Not maturing. Not being on fire in those things. That's just the reality. In this case, where you're ailing with the church, and I always say, if the shoe fits where? There seems to be those who believe and those who don't believe in the church of Sardis. It's probably true here as well. It's definitely true in the church worldwide. And there's this reality that if you don't keep it, if you don't remember, if you don't wake up, Jesus is coming like a thief, he says. You will not know at what hour I will come to you. The seems, I don't think a reference, uh, this seems to be a reference to this reality that they're going to lose their influence. Every time thief is used, it's used often of the, the second coming. It's used in judgment. I think that's just picked up here. That he's coming suddenly, unexpectedly. You don't know the day when your sins will find you out, in essence. You don't know. And he's saying that is the reality. You just don't know when. There's certain things that I start to put on autopilot in my life. Certain realities. Particularly, I remember uh, my grandfather, who was one of those guys who was always healthy. Sharp mind. Physically able to do things. And you know, he turns 88, turns 89, turns 90. I mean, I'll be honest. You just start going like, wow. He was great. And there's almost this feeling, which we all know is not true, but that that person will live forever. They just, and I don't mean that in that negative sense. But you go in the sense that you're going, I, I almost am starting to wonder, right? So we're starting to make, he was in Minnesota at the time, so we as a family start make 
more trips up to Minnesota because we don't know how much longer, but none of us do. But you kind of go, I kind of know the average lifespan of human beings, and so we better make it up there and, and see them. And then there comes that day when, I remember when Grandpa died, which was a couple of years ago, and 93 years old, and you go, wow. <laughs> I mean, I knew it would happen, but it hit me such a strange way. All of a sudden, it's just boom, right? Swift. This is a reality. This, this will happen. It's not a question of both Christ's return or judgment, right? Whether it's at the end of our lives or it happens in this life, there's consequences for sure. But it's going to happen. There, there's no running from it. And this is just this warning that you better wake up and, and live like you understand that reality. But one day it just happens. The question comes, are you ready? I also think of this, the remembering side of this reality. And, and Lord willing, we're looking at ways to get creative and uh, do some baptisms up here is the plan. We've kind of been begging and borrowing and stealing to get baptisms done um, because we don't have a spot to do them regularly. So we've got some good uh, creative ideas of a horse trough back here. Um, hopefully it doesn't leak. You know, we'll see what happens. But Lord willing, I'd love to have baptisms that happen on a Sunday. Why? Well, I can tell you firsthand, baptisms, when you hear people give testimonies, if that's part of their baptisms, and then I, personally, I don't think you have to, but I, I like it and we do it. But you hear people explain who they were before Christ, how they met Christ, how they heard the gospel. And what you see, I can only describe by as saying you see life. And you see fruit, and you see people who came who weren't baptized, who got baptized. You saw people who came who were nominal, as it were, who are getting serious about their faith. And it's extremely encouraging. Uh, the church that I first worked at, I was a pastoral assistant. Uh, I was in charge. One of my responsibilities was, was baptisms and getting them organized and scheduled and those things. And it was fun. And it was one of the great things about being in a larger city at a larger church in this case, because we pretty much would have two to three baptisms every single Sunday. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have that every single Sunday, but it was so encouraging. You think people would get tired, right? You just don't get tired of it. You're never going to get tired of hearing someone say, this is who I was. This is what I was involved in. I came to know Christ and how that person got witness to. And oftentimes it's the least likely people and everyone out there, and this be true of us, you get so encouraged because we all know somebody who's very unlikely. You go, I don't know if that person is ever going to become a Christian. And then you hear some story and you go, it can happen. And you keep praying and you're encouraged by seeing that life and by remembering that hearing their story, you remember your own story. I think it's an important part of the church. And if we ever build a building, building a baptismal right here or somewhere, maybe up in a loft or something. But it's that important, I think, that you want to see it happen. And it's a reminder of life in the church. And it's a way we all remember what Christ has done, what we have received and what we then look at ways in which we've grown cold, whether it be the issues at Ephesus or whether it's the issues at Thyatira or any of these churches, and we take it and we grow from there. Lastly, this has been consistent all the way through, is this waking up by holding on to the promise of life. This is overcomer promise that you're meant to be encouraged and motivated, that you excel still more, that you overcome. Starting there in verse 4 of chapter 3. But you have a few names, which of course, again, people, right? Why does he say names? Because it's important to him in this little letter. 
They have a name they're not living up to. He said, there are people with names and they are living up to it and they're in the book of life and I won't blot them out. It becomes important. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They will walk with me in white. They are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and will never erase his, and I will never erase his name for the book of life and will confess his name before my father. Start seeing the name, name. You confess, he confesses you. His name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so you see common elements, what we've seen throughout the weeks. He who overcomes, the one who is in Christ, the believer. And if you have an ear, pay attention. Don't just hear it one ear out the other, but let this interact with your life and let it take root and change where change is needed. But what's unique here is the pictures he gives, both of the clothed white garments. There's some, he's saying, that have not been stained, which that's all we have here is an implication that something's going on with sin and idolatry that is staining them. And he's saying, I know there's not all of you, seems a lot of them, because it's affecting the reputation of the church, but there's some here who don't do that. And he's describing them in white garments, which simply is a way of saying that they are clean. They are living holy lives. They're not simply living low profile, getting along with the culture and seeing all those stains. They've received white robes. It's our revelation that color is important. It's going to describe purity that's resulted from being faithful, being tested by a refining fire. But only that, it represents, in this case, a non-compromising spirit. They chose not to compromise where everyone else did. And it stands in contrast to the compromise or the stain of those here in Sardis and the other churches. And so he, in that way, comes out and finally says, not quite the accommodation we're used to, but it's a good thing here. There are some who have not defiled their garments, who will walk with me in white they walk in a worthy manner, Ephesians 4. He who overcomes white garments, this is good. They should be encouraged. And more than that, he gives an affirmation, which unfortunately many times is taken the wrong way because it's put in the negative. And I don't think when it says, I will never erase his name from the book of life is to say that it's possible. It's simply an affirmation of this reality. It's never going to happen. It never could happen. If you look at this and you start to look at the phrase book of life, it's used five times throughout the book of Revelation. And so this isn't, this is common language we're going to see popping up and up uh, over and over again. And it's going to be as well kind of lifted, just like we've seen so many things from Old Testament. It's in Daniel where you first see that the books are going to be opened. And in Revelation, you're going to have the book of life and the books of judgment. If you go to Revelation chapter 20. So this isn't a picture or a metaphor that is, is foreign. It, it's that idea, if you understand, there is a book and it has names in it. And the question is going to be is, where is your name? I think one commentator was helpful in this. I'll read a quote from him. This is what he says, quote, a possible inference from this second aspect of the overcomer's promise is that if the readers do not overcome, they will be erased from the book of life. But this is not logically necessary. And it's unlikely that it is in mind. And I'd say, well, why is it unlikely? Because 
that's not what the scriptures teach, right? And I don't want, you're always in danger. You want to take a metaphor too far, uh, a picture in the scriptures too far and build a whole doctrine. Um, scripture's clear. If you're in Christ, you remain in Christ. He will hold you fast. First, he continues, none of the other promises to overcomer contain such an implicit threat of losing salvation once gain. It doesn't, doesn't show up anywhere else. But they are coined in purely positive terms. The emphasis of this expression is that those who persevere and prove themselves genuine will surely receive the promise they deserve. If they are genuine believers, then their names indeed have already been written down in the book of life. They are destined for a salvific inheritance. Nothing will prevent them from possessing it. But in a somewhat unusual fashion, he simply just expresses the positive guarantee of inheritance, expressed it in a way that's negative, which is, I'm just reminding you, if you are in Christ, I will not erase your name. And in that way, it's meant to encourage, not to be a threat to discourage. This is an encouragement that you will are his and he is yours. Your name is in the book of life. And more so than that, if you confess his name, he says, I will confess your name before my father, before his angels. Wake up, hold on to the promise of life in Christ. Let it be fuel when times are difficult and you're, you're struggling and, and looking back and saying, I'm not where I should be and that's normal and okay. And start from here, wherever you're at. Let it be fuel to keep moving when you are struggling. It's interesting, historically, about Sardis, as I said, we don't know much about the church. But what is interesting is, if this is around 90s AD, that in the, about 100 years later, there is a well-known apologist or defender of the faith and that comes from Sardis. His name is Melito. He's well-known, and he's actually known as one of the earliest commentators on Revelation. And I at least look at that, because I wonder what happened what happened to them? Did they take this warning? Were they able to come back from the edge? And it seems there at least was some revival. Jesus didn't come and take the church. They were still there at least a hundred years later. And so it'd be great maybe someday in heaven to find out exactly what happened with Sardis. But there seemed to be a wake-up, a revival, where a little spark, maybe not much, but was fanned into a full-blown flame. They woke up. You might be here this morning. You, you might be discouraged in your walk with Christ, but this should be an encouragement. And I don't know if you came thinking, this church is dead, the dead church. How am I encouraged by that? But I, hopefully as we walk through, you've found encouragement in this, that there is still time. There is still hope. And you commit yourself to taking whatever you have and starting from that point, whether a little or whether a lot, whether you feel like it or not, and you ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit to take that and fan that into flame. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time to reflect on the church here that you saw fit to write to, to instruct, to send this letter with this messenger, because there was hope, there was time, there was a chance for them to repent. And may that be a calling for us this morning, that we are here, we are still living, you have still given us breath, and there is still time for us as well to look at our lives and to see 
Are there areas where we are not walking worthy? And not to be weighed down by imperfection, but to be encouraged and motivated by a Savior who loves us, who encourages us, that we have hope for life and life eternal. Let us not live in the glory of the past deeds, but live in light of a future striving to continue to be used in whatever way you would see fit until we breathe our last breath. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.